Here we go. Yay. The old hey, people. how you doing, Sean? Yeah, doing absolutely phenomenal, man. Thank you for coming on. Oh, you're very welcome. Delighted to be here with you. Thank you for bearing with our technical delays this evening. And for people who are not familiar, you are the founder, architect, and engineers for 9-11 Truth. You are a San Francisco Bay Area architect and a member of the American Institute of Architects, AIA. And you've got a channel on YouTube. I've seen some stuff on YouTube anyway. Is that is that your channel? Yeah, yeah. We have a we have a channel. I'm not looking at what you might be referring to though. Are you having it. problems putting this stuff on YouTube? Does it go against the policy? Well, we've had a few uh YouTubes taken down arbitrarily. We put them back up and they seem to do better uh than before. So I don't know. It we haven't been demonetized or deplatformed yet. Actually, we were, ne we were never monetized in the first place. So, you know, my wake-up moment as an options trader was seeing the options trades go through in the days before 9-11. I don't know if you're familiar with what happened there, but these huge bets came in that the airlines were going to go down. It was reported on the news and then completely disappeared. But years later, it was traced back to some bank that was uh, had ex-CIA in, in the mix. So that was my wake-up moment. I, I started reading... Uh, books by let's just say David I, and um, I think he's quoted you guys. We've, we've we've got several podcasts of his on the channel that have done phenomenally, uh, uh, especially uh, with his with research into the nine eleven subject. What got you interested then? What's your background, and what got you interested in nine eleven? I've been an architect for thirty years, and in two thousand six, I was shocked to hear on the radio uh, a gentleman, uh, David Ray Griffin, who's now written twelve books on the subject of nine eleven truth. Uh, and here in the Bay Area, um, I, I had never heard any other alternative theory as to how these towers came down. And I'm talking not just two towers, but three: World Trade Center one, two, and World Trade Center Building seven. Uh, and I didn't know. The, I didn't know a third tower came down. I mean, this is a 47-story skyscraper that dropped like a rock straight down uniformly, symmetrically into its own footprint on the afternoon of 9-11. And when I saw this uh, the, later the next day, uh, I, I, was, I was just shocked. I mean, I'm an architect. This should have been the most studied building failure in all of history. After all, it wasn't hit by a plane like the first two towers. So I'd put my nose to the grindstone, did a lot of research, uh, put together a PowerPoint uh, based on the work of Stephen Jones uh, originally. And he's a, a, a physicist formerly from Brigham Young University. We, I took that to the architects that I worked with, about 15 in our firm. All of them agreed with me uh, at that point uh, after I bought them pizza and made them uh, watch this 45-minute presentation where you actually look physically visually at the evidence and they all agreed it was a controlled demolition and they all signed my uh petition except one who was my boss he was middle eastern he didn't want to put his name on anything like that it was a climate of fear uh back then for middle e middle easterners uh so i was on my way we now have 3500 architects and engineers signed on to the petition demanding a new investigation into the destruction of these three towers why doesn't the government want people like you looking at this? Wouldn't they want the truth to come out? Uh, I would hope that they would. 
I've found in my own experience that many people are not emotionally or psychologically capable of digesting the implications of the destruction of these towers uh, by purposeful controlled demolition, which is what the evidence that we're going to talk about today actually shows. Uh, it, it, it changes our worldview. It, it implies a level of conspiracy that most of us are incapable of handling. Uh, it brings about uh, uh, incredible fear, uh, our most fundamental fear that, that our, own, our own authorities are capable of the wanton murder of thousands of our own citizens in order to manipulate us all psychologically to go to war, in this case, in the Middle East. Uh, in, a, in a false flag operation, which is what governments do to manipulate their citizens by attacking themselves and then blaming it on another country uh, and using that as an excuse to go to war with that country. In this case, uh, not only uh, Afghanistan, but Iraq also and subsequent countries which are still being um, uh, forcefully occupied in parts, Syria for instance, uh, Libya invaded, et cetera, et cetera. And the contracts, the money at stake are in the trillions. So for you to spearhead this, are you at risk of your life? And what do you hope to achieve? Well, I was certainly concerned about that in the beginning, but it's been 14 years now and nobody has killed me. I uh, haven't even gotten a phone call offering me money uh, to cease and desist. So I'm just keeping on going. Uh, so we're getting the word out. There's millions in the 9-11 Truth Movement now. So we're very well supported. We've been making uh, powerhouse films, and we're working on another one, which will soon be announced uh, about uh, the first responders uh, who are witnesses of explosions on 9-11. Uh, and and uh, who have been uh, quelled uh, by the powers that be in, in their arenas. So, all right, let's get into the nitty-gritty then. What is Building 7 and why is it so important? Who used it? Well, uh, this is a 47-story skyscraper that is part of the World Trade Center complex, about 100 yards from the North Tower. It received a little bit of damage when the North Tower went down, uh, from the beams that hit it. Um, but this was regarded by NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, as an insignificant factor in the building's collapse. Uh, so, because the collapse uh, started, uh, according to NIST, from fires on the other side of the building, the, uh, the northeast side of the building, uh, which they claim uh, in their official report on the building, which came out seven years after 9-11, they've been juggling this football that long, uh, they claim that these uh, fires were raging, which the evidence shows that they were not, uh, but that they expanded these beams on this floor 13, pushing this girder off of its seat on a particular column, number 79, and then a progressive collapse ensues, caving in the inside of the building, uh, on the east side, and then that in caving in uh, travels across the building uh, with uh, nary a, 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 a hint of evidence of such going on on the outside of the building. So they say this is the first 10 seconds or so of this building's collapse, but 
then uh, the 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 East Penthouse uh, has already fallen, and then the, the entire building uh, comes down uh, uniformly smoothly, uh, as fast as a bowling ball falling out of the sky, and and this is symmetrically straight down into its own footprint, in the exact manner of a classic controlled demolition, which we've all seen on YouTube. Uh, or, or TV, the old hotels in Las Vegas, for instance. So it looks exactly like that, and yet NIST, it, in their report, uh, attempts to explain it away as a progressive collapse uh, due to fire. And we prog we progressively uh, dismantle that entire theory in our online webinar, which people can watch for free on YouTube, called 9-11, An Architect's Guide. And we do that in part one of that three-part series. We also do it in uh, our landmark documentary, 9-11 Explosive Evidence, Experts Speak Out. And we've also made a film about the finite element analysis that's been done by the uh, University of Alaska by Professor Leroy Holsey, one of the top controlled demolition experts in the country. Excuse me, I got, I got that backwards. One of the top forensic uh, structural analysts in the country. And he has dismantled the, uh, the NIST thesis as well, uh, concluding in this four-year study that it could not have been uh, destroyed by fire, according to NIST's theory, uh, or um, a progressive collapse for that matter. Their conclusion was that all of the columns in the building had to have been uh, removed, basically, at once in order for this building to collapse uh, in the manner that it did. And, and we're talking, you know, within a second of each other. Well, fire doesn't have that precision, let alone that uh, capability to destroy columns. Fire's never brought down a steel frame skyscraper ever in the history of these buildings, a hundred year history. Uh, these these uh, these steel frames are fire protected with cementitious fireproofing. Uh, they don't uh, they don't uh, they don't collapse in in fires. So we have a real problem with the NIST theory, and as a result, we've submitted a request for correction. In this country, we can do that with agencies that commit fraud like this, and uh, we are in an appeal process now with NIST. And uh, we're about ready to sue them as well if that appeal uh, does not uh, yield uh, truthful results. So there's videos that I've seen of firemen talking about explosions in the basement of one of the buildings. I'm wondering if that corroborates what you're saying or whether you've actually spoke to any of these fire people. Well, there are plenty of witnesses of explosions in the basements, which shouldn't be and isn't according to the official story. And yet in the documents, uh, the documentaries that, that I mentioned, we uh, go into quite a bit of detail and eyewitness testimony about just that, one of which was um, Willie Rodriguez, uh, a janitor in the uh, World Trade Center North Tower. He was standing on uh, the floor in the basement at the B2 level, two levels down, and he hears an explosion and feels it. It pushes the floor up. Uh, and so uh, he, he, 
and the guy comes running in, uh, explosion, explosion is, is, uh, his skin is ripped off his, his, uh, arms. Uh, they all, and there was one many witnesses to all of this. And then, uh, interestingly, uh, about seven seconds later, he hears, uh, uh, what what he refers to as a bah from uh, up above. Um, and that's the plane hitting the building. So indeed, there were explosions in the basement prior to the plane even hitting the building, as well as after the plane hit the building, uh, explosions throughout the World Trade Center complex. In fact, witnessed by uh, now 156 documented eyewitness statements. Uh, uh, the work of Professor Graham McQueen, uh, in which they describe explosions uh, before the uh, towers came down. Uh, in fact, most of them immediately before the towers collapsed. And they're very specific about the order of these events. It's absolutely fascinating. And this is backed up by the seismic evidence, which uh, shows that the timing of the explosions or the, in the basement occur again uh, uh, several seconds before the plane hit the building. This is very well documented um, by Andre Rousseau in 2012 and a, a, a mechanical wave geologist, author of 50 peer-reviewed papers. And so we've taken this uh, fascinating study of the seismic evidence and included it in part two of the three-part series, 9-11, An Architect's Guide, a three-part series. Uh, this is for lay people and architects as well. And then the explosions before the collapses is also very well documented seismically by Andre Rousseau. That is absolutely mind-blowing. That means that allegedly this could be one of the big, biggest uh, criminal conspiracies in the history of the world. And in terms of evidence then, there's a crime scene, which would be the rubble. So were you able to access any of the rubble? What happened to the rubble? Well, there's been many scientists, including the U.S. Geological Survey and, uh, and environmental firms like uh, uh, R.J. Lee Group, which uh, have analyzed the dust and have found something in there that they cannot explain and do not try to explain, but which becomes the typical signature element of the World Trade Center dust. And that is billions of previously molten iron microspheres. These, this is evidence of melted iron. It takes 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit, about half that, uh, in Celsius, to melt iron. So how is, and, and, and office fires only get to be about 500 degrees, 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe about half that for Celsius. So how are we having evidence of melted iron in all the World Trade Center dust in spheres about the maximum is a millimeter large? Most of them are almost naked to the human eye. These are documented as elemental iron, not steel, but elemental iron. So now we're talking about four tons of elemental iron strewn throughout the World Trade Center dust. Well, the, the only way to have that happen is 
And RJ Lee, by the way, says these are formed during the event, not before by the welders putting the building together, not afterward by the iron workers taking it uh, apart uh, after 9-11, but during the event, uh, extreme heat. Now, jet fuel only gets to be about uh, 600 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe about half that uh, for Celsius. Um, and that's according to the manufacturer, ME Petroleum. So it's basically kerosene. It doesn't burn any hotter than desks or chairs. Um, so we have a real problem with all of this evidence uh, documented by so many of these official source scientists. It's a problem for the official story. They can't explain it. They don't. Now, what could explain it? Well, thermite is an incendiary used by the military to cut through steel like a hot knife through butter. It, it, it uh, releases molten iron as its byproduct at 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe half of that for Celsius. So this is, this is an answer, and the only likely answer is to how all those previously molten iron microspheres got in all the World Trade Center dust samples. Well, there's another team of, of independent scientists led by Niels Herrett in Copenhagen, which is given uh, four samples, which they document, collected independently. And they look at this very carefully, and they find that these red-gray chips, red on one side, gray on the other, have the the ingredients of thermite in them, which is iron oxide, which is basically rust, and aluminum powder. So these are in the World Trade Center dust sample, uh, in these chips in the samples. They shouldn't be there. This is the ingredients of thermite. This is not paint. They are attracted to a magnet. They have a huge iron content. Uh, so they, they get real curious and they zoom in 50,000 times with an electron microscope. And what do they find? Nano-sized particles of iron oxide and aluminum powder set in a bed of oxygen, silica, carbon, which is organic material, which is responsible for the expansion in TNT, which knocks things over. And so here we have an incendiary, which is apparently re-engineered to become more explosive. And they put this in a in a heater, a differential scanning calorimeter, one, you know, little, the little chips and they ignite and they produce what? Uh, at 420 Celsius, they produce molten iron microspheres with the exact same chemical signature as the billions of molten iron microspheres found in all the World Trade Center dust by these official scientists from USGS and RJ Lee, et cetera. So they, we know exactly where those molten iron microspheres came from. They came from these red-gray chips, which are the physical uh, scientific forensic evidence of highly engineered, they call it nano, nano uh, thermite because it's at the nano scale thousand times smaller than the diameter of a human hair these particles so this if this is uh ex experimentally reproducible evidence that is self-corroborative 
and can be used in a court of law for to bring to bring to justice the real perpetrators of the destruction of these towers. What are squibs? Well, squibs are visible uh, in the uh, the videos of the destruction of the World Trade Center towers, and they are isolated explosive ejections. So we believe that there are also high energy explosives in the towers responsible for the very explosive event uh, of the towers. They come down symmetrically, but 99% of the tower's contents is outside the footprint. And, and um, but before that happens, these isolated explosive ejections are seen occurring 20, 40, and even 60 stories down below what we're told is a gravitational collapse. By the way, that what we're told is the upper part above the point of jet plane impacts, the upper section of the building, 15 stories in the case of the North Tower, drove the rest of the building down to the ground and then destroyed itself. Well, that violates the laws of physics, conservation of momentum. There's an equal and opposite destructive force when two bodies collide. That lighter, weaker part of the towers would be destroyed as it's destroying the structure immediately below it. It's like when you run a Mack truck into a Volkswagen. What what wins? Uh, the lorry, right? Uh, so uh, the Volkswagen doesn't stand a chance. Well, this is a Volkswagen comparatively in this virtual pyramid of structure. Well, after that, we have these laterally ejected, freely flying structural steel sections weighing four to eight tons landing 600 feet out from the towers. Well, gravity works down, but we have 99% of the steel in these buildings ejected up to 600 feet away. So what's causing that force, that, that ejection? And, and the fact that they're ejected and landing up to 600 feet away means that they did not and could not contribute to the gravitational destruction of this building. The kinetic energy is not over the destruction of the building. It's out. So you can see that freely flying structural steel sections in, in the videos. They're very well documented in our, in our uh, documentary ESO. Experts speak out. And so if, if, if it's not the steel, which is a third of the weight of this building, then may, what is it that's destroying the, the, the building below? You say, well, maybe the concrete floors are pancaking, right? Well, if you look at the videos, you also see in the photos, no concrete floors down at the bottom. You don't see 50 stories. You don't see 10 stories. You don't even see one acre size floor stacked up at the bottom. There's just a two-story pile of miscellaneous metal and powder. So wh where is the concrete floors? Well, it's pulverized in midair. That's what all the videos show. And, and this is ex distributed laterally in these extremely hot waves of expanding clouds in cauliflower-shaped forms, which is a pyroclastic uh, dynamic, like from volcanoes, where there's an expansion of heat due to the incredible heat, not from the fires, because surely they were put out by the action of the downward 
uh, force of the building. Um, but and not if if not the explosive nature of the destruction itself. So the fires aren't available, but what's creating all that heat? Well, we talked about 4,000 degree thermite charges and molten iron, which are seen in pools all the way around each tower and at the bottom of each tower, pools of molten iron. Dozens and dozens of first responders talking about all this molten iron flowing down the channel rails like lava, they say. The, the structural engineer, Leslie Robertson, finds it himself. He says, a river of steel flowing. That's incredible evidence uh, from the World Trade Center structural engineer himself. But he doesn't know where it might have come from. They don't process this information. So this is all quite damaging uh, to the official story, which is why I presume we're being so censored on mainstream media. And thank God for alternative media uh, like we have here uh, with you, Sean. And but because the concrete floors, by the way, uh, we don't find them at the bottom. We see them pulverized. Well, if they're pulverized and sent outside the footprint in a three square mile area in a blanket about nine centimeters thick, how could it have contributed to the collapse also? It couldn't destroy pulverized in midair. So that's two-thirds the weight of this building that is not available to crush it. Uh, and, and the gypsum board, of course, is not either because it's found in all of this powder as well. So it's, it's being destroyed itself. And we see those explosions individually, dozens of them at a time, for instance, traveling down the south tower uh, ahead of what we're told is the gravitational collapse. All these explosions coming out of the tower all at once. Uh, well, successively, floor by floor. It's extraordinary visual evidence that people have to watch physically with their own eyes uh, as we're talking to you about uh, what you're actually seeing because you were told it was an orange, but it's clearly an apple. And that's why I didn't see it for five years after 9-11. I just put it away. I was in shock like everybody else. I set it aside. I said, the experts are telling me it's gravitational collapse. I'm, I'm. Uh, what do I know? You know, I'm just an architect, just like all the other architects out there. We're in shock. We don't want to have to go back to that horrible moment with that pain-filled center inside of ourselves uh, that is um, uh, extremely difficult to, to revisit emotionally. So we just deny and we just call people conspiracy theorists and and go about our way and pretend and hope that we can get on with our lives. To establish those detonations, someone would have been had access to the building. Do you have eyewitness accounts of strange comings and goings? And who was in charge of security of the building who could have allowed access to install those detonators? Yeah, they're, 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 we, there's a, it's a company called Securicom and Stratasec that had the security contract for the building and uh surely we have uh a a problem there because under their noses would have to have been brought all this material well 
if there's been research into who ran this company and it's, it's very interesting, um, uh, high level, uh, individuals, re individuals related to extremely high level, uh, 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 people. So, uh, a lot of this work is done by David Ray Griffin in his, one of his 12, several of his 12 books on this subject. So I, I refer people to, to that effort, uh, for, for, to him, for those research efforts that are beyond the scope of the three World Trade Center skyscrapers, at least architecturally, explosively, which is the, what we focus on here because it's such valuable, clear, scientific, forensic evidence that, that we put out that um, we, don't, we don't gain anything by, by speculating uh, who may have been responsible for this uh, or how, how they got away with it, uh, it's quite enough uh, for us to land in the lap of most people new to this information, the physical, tangible proof, and let them deal with it and, and, and with these very important questions that you're asking, including, you know, what happened at the Pentagon? What happened at Shanksville? Why are the air, did the Air Force uh, stand down and allow these jets in. Why didn't they shoot them down when they came in? Or did they uh, in some cases? So uh, very important questions. And uh, uh, Griffin does a, an excellent job with these, um, as does um, Massimo Mizuko in his uh, DVD, 9-11 uh, New Pearl Harbor. It's five DVDs, actually. So... Does information constantly come into your group and have you learned anything surprising recently? Yeah, we're, we're getting information, uh, lots of information. We're, we're also pursuing legal objectives. Um, and uh, we, we're, we have the reach that's capable of funding very important uh, legal uh, canons, uh, such as the lawsuit against the FBI, which is ongoing, uh, the submittal of a petition for a grand jury investigation to the U.S. attorney in Manhattan, which is ongoing, and the submittal of a, uh, which will affect your listeners uh, also, this is the application for a new inquest into the death of Jeff Campbell, who was murdered on the 126th floor of the North Tower. And he uh, and his family, well, his family is uh, submitting, uh, next week it is, we've been working on this for over a year. And uh, one of the top forensic, uh, well, one of the top attorneys in, in London, who happens to be a coroner himself, is working very hard on this and it'll be submitted next week uh, on behalf of the Campbell family and other families are expected to join in when this uh, is approved and we believe it will be by the Attorney General uh, of, of the UK. So uh, for a new inquest, citing the evidence that we've been talking about today and of course uh, uh, much more than we've been able to talk about today. 
we're getting near the end of this and a few questions have come in from the viewers for you richard so rebecca has got two questions and that is could richard say something about how long the building's collapse is measured on the richter scale uh, what would richard expect to happen to see a passenger plane that hit a steel and concrete building yeah let's take them one at a time you might have to remind me what the second okay. one is the, the 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 collapses are said by nist the national institute of standards and technology to have produced a seismic signal on the order of 2.1 and 2.3 on the richter scale that's a 1.6 times difference by the way so we have we have identical buildings collapsing identically that produce on an order of magnitude a difference that cannot be explained by natural collapses whatsoever according to andre rousseau in 2012 the french seism uh, not seismologist but a geo geo expert in, the, in this field geomechanical waves so um and so th th that is also uh but the the problem is is that the the seismic evidence he has proved that uh the the uh the, the seismic event uh, occurs several seconds before the the even the first debris hits the ground and certainly before the heaviest debris in one of the towers so he's also proven that that has to have been an explosive origin um and, and he also proves by the way that the plane hitting the building could not have even reached 20 20 or 17 kilometers away uh at, at the at the seismology uh lab there in palisades new york so uh it, it must have been explosions also and because they have a they have the, the, the bell-like form points to an explosive uh, origin. Uh, frequencies of planes hitting buildings are two orders of magnitude above that which uh, happens by way of, of explosive origin. So they're even locked out of the, by the bandpass filters that are used by the seismologists. So uh, that, that, that might help there. And then your second question was about, I told you I forget. Let me just pull that one up again for you. So the second question was, uh, what would Richard expect to happen to a passenger plane that hit a steel and concrete building? Oh, yes. Well, um, in the center of the gash, we'll talk about the North Tower, uh, which hits kind of in the center of the building. There's a large, a bunch of pushed out um, three vertical, three horizontal, columns and spandrel panels they're locked together and in turn bolted in place well what happened with these and they're held together bolted only by four bolts so the plane had to push a punch through several of these uh these sections of exterior perimeter wall structure and then and, and that's true also for the larger section of wings um but uh, so they're not slicing through 14-inch square steel tube columns. They're pushing in these whole sections, sh shearing the bolts. And then where the wings are, wings, uh, wing tips, they don't, they don't even penetrate the steel. Uh, they, the steel shreds the, the wing tips like a, uh, an egg slicer. 
so uh, it's it's a fascinating mix of those two phenomena. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. Huge thank you for coming on tonight, Richard. Can people uh, contact you through social medias or through your website? Yeah, please. It's um, AE911Truth.org. That stands for Architects and Engineers, AE911Truth.org. And we encourage people to support us. We have a lot of work we're doing. And there's a donate button there. You can join for as little a cup of coffee as a cup of coffee a month. Uh, the, the family of sustaining supporters. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, truly important work on the thing that absolutely opened my eyes to um, the Machiavellian nature of how things really operate in the world. So that's nice, nice part of the jigsaw puzzle that you filled in there. Ties in with a lot of other researchers that we've had. Uh, that have spoke on this subject so huge thank you for coming on richard hope you have a great rest of your wednesday and good luck in what you're doing thanks thanks so much uh, bye everybody cheers bye-bye yes i can hear you loud and clear thank you for joining us oh thank you for having me i'm so sorry the gremlins are after all of us i know that's okay yeah. though we managed to navigate the gremlins this evening and yes. we're, we're here now and people are eagerly anticipating your thoughts on first off the maxwell trial date being moved but let me just say to people watching this that mm -hmm. kirby has arranged many of our guests for some of the the, the guests that have been on and, and these live streams in recent months have come about because of kirby she has numerous books out she's very active on twitter if you want to talk to her directly, I suggest you go to Twitter. And all of her links will be in the description box if you want to support her work. Um, may I start with something that no one's ever talked about so that you get a scoop? The yeah. um, So while I've been doing my research for my new book, Ghislaine Maxwell, An Unauthorized Biography, I came across clues that Ghislaine may have been spying for her father and being taught can we talk about that and then we can jump to whatever you want we can talk about whatever you want it's all fascinating yeah go for it okay cool so um yeah so while i was doing my research i basically came across some things that sounded odd to me and then i just kept going deeper and deeper so when maxwell robert maxwell died in 1991 it was discovered that Ghislaine Maxwell was getting a salary of a hundred thousand pounds. Now that's back in nineteen. Yeah, her sal That's what her salary was for nineteen ninety. So that's the equivalent of one hundred and thirty-two thousand dollars back in nineteen ninety. Don't you agree? That's a lot of money. Huge. Right. I mean, even in the U UK. I mean, even in the U.S., that was a lot of money. Now here's the thing, Robert Maxwell like Jeffrey Epstein, was a very tight man. He didn't like to spend his own money, but he liked to brag that he had more money than he had, right? So he fired someone according to, um, and you've read this guy's book, Gordon Thomas, who wrote Robert Maxwell, Israel's Super Spy. Well, according to, yeah, you read, you know him, right? Because I know yeah. you read his book. Yeah. So according to him, he used to work for Maxwell. And according to him, Maxwell was so super tight that he fired somebody on Christmas for stealing 50 cents. 
So you know that somebody who's who's like gonna like fire somebody over somebody stealing fifty cents is not gonna pay even his favorite daughter, Ghislaine, a hundred thousand pounds. So I'm like, okay, what was Ghislaine doing for a hundred thousand pounds from her father? And I found it. So apparently, starting from approximately 1984, Robert Maxwell replaced her mother Betty. Betty was his polish. Remember, she was the French, aristocratic, well-spoken, well-dressed. She gave him that added edge uh, for the powerful people that they were rubbing elbows with. You know, I mean, that's who made him, because he was not likable. Nobody liked him. He was brash. He was selfish. He was rude. You're right. He had no manners, but Betty made him agreeable to the finer people in in their world well he pushed her to the side and he replaced her with Ghislaine Maxwell so instead of taking his wife to the dinners and the first night events and the parties he started taking Ghislaine and introducing her to the world leaders well he also took her to the White House he took her to the Kremlin he took her to Israel. He took her on tons of trips, introducing her to everyone. Now, who introduces their daughter to the heads of countries and of states? Not that many people and not even just to show off, right? I mean, isn't that like, it's odd, right? All right, well, he didn't just do that. He allowed her to take his place at very important events that he couldn't attend. So for example, this is, I'm gonna use four examples to show that I believe she was a spy, okay? Now it's just my interpretation, I could be wrong, but I'm sharing it with everyone. I'd love to hear what people have to say about this. So on November 19, 1989, Robert Maxwell was the scheduled speaker for a very important dinner in Los Angeles on behalf of Nazi hunter Simon Weisenthal. Now, for that date, he was already scheduled to visit with President Gorbachev in Moscow, so he could not attend. What does he do? He has Ghislaine, who's probably, what, 20-something years old? It just Well, she's, she's 28 or something, right? Attend. She's a, a month before she's 29. So she's still, I think, young to sort of be the dinner chairperson well she goes in his place she delivers the dinner according to the people at the dinner she did very well she goes back to her hotel room she calls her father in moscow and she gives him a report of the event now notice i said report she doesn't and you know this has been written about that's why i know it was a report um so she gives him a report and she's expecting her father to be her father, her, her doting father, and to say, oh, you did a great job, but he doesn't do that. He issues a scathing tirade of complaints. So to me, I, that didn't seem normal because I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. He does everything with her. And this doesn't seem to me like a normal response. And so she is completely taken aback. She sits down and she writes him a letter of apology. And she says in this letter, 
I am very sorry that my description of the dinner this morning was inadequate and made you angry. I should have expressed at the start of our conversation that I was merely presenting you with a preliminary report of the evening and that a full written report was to follow. So to me, this seemed to me that he was using her for her social skills because she was a people person so that he could get information from the people where he sent her to. At the time, she was bubbly. She was considered pretty. She was never a beauty, but she was pretty. She had a great personality for men. She could be a bitch with women. This has been said. But she, you know, but with men, she could wrap them around her finger and they enjoyed talking to her. And 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 as we know, men like to brag to a pretty woman. And she was just, you know, sitting there kind of allowing these men to sort of be wrapped around her finger so I can well imagine she got a lot of information from the men that she met at this event. So she then sits down and writes a very long description of every guest at the party. She sends it to her father. She signs off. I'll call you again tomorrow to receive your precise instructions for the Kennedy wedding. Come on, your precise instructions. To me, that, that, I'm sorry, that's ding, ding, ding. That's, he's giving her, you know, he's teaching her how to become a spy. That's, so what I want to say that in my book, I go deeper with the Simon Weisenthal connections because your show's only 30 minutes and I want to get in as much as I can. But I will say this, that all of the people that Robert Maxwell sends her to it's all circles within circles. So that Simon Weisenthal, if we go circles within circles, it connects back to Leon Black and some of the other people who are then part of Jeffrey Epstein's world that we discover you know, later in the future. So the next event that he sends her to is on June 9th, 1990. She attends the wedding of Carrie Kennedy to Andrew Cuomo. A lot is being said about Andy Cuomo right now in New York. Um, Carrie Kennedy is the seventh child and the third daughter of Robert F. Kennedy, the former attorney general of the United States. So he is the, the brother of JFK. The church was in, in, I think it was, yeah, it was in Washington, D.C. at St. Matthew's Cathedral there were only 300 guests. Well, again, in my book, I go deeper because Andrew Cuomo's family for generations, for decades, have sinister connections to the mob. They have been denied. They have been downplayed for a very long time. But once again, it circles back to some of the people that are connected to Epstein. So in my book, I just go a little bit deeper and I, and I sort of go into that. So the third thing, to me, I mean, this was the most startling thing for me. It was the third thing and I'm doing it in chronological order. So on November 5th, 1990, Ghislaine flies to New York from London 
with an envelope. Inside the envelope are shares of the school Berlitz, which it's a publicly traded company, but Maxwell has the majority shares, right? But inside this envelope are nine forged certificates. So, and it's part of the plundering of the shareholders. Because remember, when Robert Maxwell was discovered to have been a thief, he didn't just steal from the pensioners and from his employees. He stole from the banks. He stole from uh, stockholders. And so she went to New York. She handed the envelope to an attorney. She gets back on an airplane. She goes back to London. When her father dies and everything is discovered, the only people that stand accused are her brothers who are staunchly defending her today, Kevin and Ian Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell, who by this very definition, and this has been written about, has taken part in a swindle, right? Because she's delivering forged certificates that are, they're actually part of the trial. These certificates are part of that case. But do her brothers say anything? Do the attorney say anything? Does anybody in the office say anything and implicate Ghislaine? No. In the published articles about this, the way that they excuse her behavior is they say, well, she didn't know. Come on, that, come on. She didn't know. Do you think she didn't know? I think this is absolutely bloody fascinating, Kirby. Where do you dig this stuff up from? I, I work seven days a week around the clock. I keep going until I drop. So I've got more. I've got more. Okay. So on July 13th, 1991, now this is just a couple of months before her father dies. Again, on instruction of her father, she goes to another Kennedy wedding. By the way, her father wanted her to marry a Kennedy junior right because he wanted a really important guy for her but anyway she she goes to a lot of weddings as we have seen with the clinton photo bombing okay but she goes to weddings so on july 13th 1991 she attends the wedding of matthew maxwell kennedy to victoria ann strauss now matthew was the ninth child of robert kennedy so he has two children who get married very close in time. Um, Victoria Ann Strauss is an important uh, name because her parents and her grandfather, they're the owners and the creators of the, prep, the Pep Brothers Company, so P-E-P. And again, in my book, I go deeper because the Pep Brothers Company then connect I'll give you the names because it's circles within circles. Leslie Wexner, Glenn Dubin, Eva Dubin, Michael Milk, and Leon Black. It just, it, later in the future, we will see all of these names, well, in my book only, right? And maybe on your show, they'll hear this. Um, so, but I'm giving you at least the top. So, so that he's sending her to, to be part of these very important events, historical events, yes, but also events where there are people there where that the information that she could glean from them might help him with a stock purchase, right? 
with knowing who's going to be doing what. This is a very heavy political family. Who's going to be, you know, who's going to be important, who he should target, maybe what he should say to whomever he's spying for, Israel, Israel, Israel. But anyway, um, so these are the four examples that I'm using for this. Um, so out of the four, which one surprised you the most? I'm surprised by all of it, Kirby. And really? in, the, in, in the chat right now, people are saying they're just praising you to the high heavens for your research. I, I thought I knew a lot about this case, but everything, absolutely everything you're saying, you know, tonight, I've not heard any of this. So this is all new and surprising to me. Please keep going. Okay. So what I'm going to uh, tell you now then, so I'm using those four examples. And if you want me to come back and give you the deeper one, I'm happy to do that anytime. Um, I want to say that when her father died, um, Ghislaine, who is known to be the level-headed one, was the one who her mother chose to give the speech. We've seen photographs of her giving the speech on the yacht in at the Canary Islands, thanking the press, so on and so forth. Well, according to Tom Bowers, who I believe worked for Robert Maxwell at the Mirror, and he also wrote several books and i believe he, he may have written two books not just one on robert maxwell he also knew Ghislaine, by the way he he claims that someone and i if i remember correctly it was her mother handed her an envelope with fifteen thousand pounds it was supposed to be for her to give to the crew members they had been through a, a horrendous experience you know according to everyone robert maxwell died everybody was trying to look for him frantically Fifteen thousand pounds was supposed to be distributed to the crew i think was like six people on a, a crew well according to bowers she kept the money i mean isn't that like a chip off the old father's block. Come on, she keeps the and 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 so I think that her brothers who are crying, Ghislaine is wonderful. They don't know who Ghislaine is. All right, so I'm gonna talk about her friends. Her friends are talking to everybody, even the ones that are scheduled to testify on behalf of the prosecution. So this one person that I, I happen to know, I, I didn't know this person before the case, but I became friendly with this person after the case because I do call people for my books. Um, this one person who will not be a friend of Ghislaine's after this little, little thing I'm going to say, <laughs> told me that while Ghislaine has been in jail, Ivana Trump, Donald Trump's first wife, and she had been communicating. Ghislaine calls her all the time. So they've been friends apparently since 1992 when they started to hang out at Mar-a-Lago. There are photographs of Ivana Trump. Maria Farmer said something very important. She said that when she was working at Epstein's house, she would get in the car with Ghislaine Maxwell and Ghislaine would have Ivana with her when they would go after chasing after the nubiles. So that this woman, Ivana Trump, not only does she know, I, I would think, but she she's a co-conspirator in my opinion. 
right? I mean, if you're in the car and going chasing children on the street, is she a co-conspirator? Well, it would depend upon the premeditation, I think. If, for example, they were going on a random journey and Galen just said, pull over, I've seen a new bile, then, you know, that's kind of a spontaneous thing, isn't it? Whereas if Ivana and Galen had premeditatedly planned to go out together to, to further a crime, then that would be a conspiracy charge right there. Yeah, I think so. Although the fact that she was married to Donald Trump, um, she's as much Teflon as Trump is, as Clinton is, I think, as Prince Andrew is. Um, So one of her friends, this was in the news three days ago, and Matthew Steeples wrote about it in his paper. Um, She's scheduled to testify against her. She gave an interview to a magazine, and she said, Ghislaine Maxwell is hypersexual. She alleges that Ghislaine told her she can get into anybody's pants and that the girls are like candy. Now, that's something a guy would say. I mean, isn't that disgusting? Absolutely disgusting and flabbergasted. The girls are, so she's going to say that in court. But the fact that she said it out here. Isn't there a law that says you can't really reveal what your testimony is going to be in court? I'm asking you because you, you, I think you know more law than I do. I've not heard of this situation arising before, so I don't know what the law is. I think it's just amazing. So anyway, the fact is that her friends are talking. I don't know how many friends she's going to have left. Um, so I'm going to get to her attorney, Bobby Sternheim. Bobby Sternheim, as you know, is her attorney. She's filed motion after motion for Ghislaine Maxwell. So I've been keeping my eye on Nicholas Tartaglioni (laughs) because his trial was scheduled for last month. And so I go in there every now and then because I want to know what happens to Nicholas Tartaglioni, who I'm going to remind your audience who he is, unless you want to do it. So my book's coming out by the end of this month, actually, Who Killed Epstein, Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton. But you've got to look at the chain of command right down to the hit person. Right. So in our conclusion, we do have Tartaglioni as a prime suspect because we had the original assault on Epstein which Epstein even told his lawyers that this, my soulmate Tartaglioni attacked me. And then yes. we got, we got the second, the fatal assault whereby, you know, perhaps Tartaglioni was, was allowed back in the cell in a quid pro quo for getting some play. Cause he's up for the death penalty. People who don't know Tartaglioni is an ex cop gone gangster who whacked, some Mexicans in a drug deal gone bad. They were lured to his brother's nightclub or restaurant, and they ended up yes. buried, buried out, out, out back. True. Now, the first one, he strangled the first one with a zip tie around his neck, according to federal prosecutors. That, to me, sounds an awful lot like how Epstein got whacked. Well, I, I looked at some of his stuff, and I was like, wait a minute. Nicholas Tartaglioni has eight 
very powerful and very expensive attorneys, eight of them. And one of them is Bobby Sternheim. Oh yeah, it, it gets crazy with these attorneys and what's going on and what's happening now. So it gets even more interesting. Westchester, where is that used to be his home, that's where he worked. It's a small enclave north of New York. You can compare it to sort of like um, Palm Beach where Epstein had his house and Trump has Mar-a-Lago. The cops are very close to the people who are affluent and powerful and they'll either do some work for them on duty, off duty, or even after they retire. So um, who lives in Westchester? Take a guess. I don't know, go for it. Okay, Bill and Hillary Clinton have been living in Westchester <laughs> since 1999. <laughs> <laughs> I, I oh my God, like you've, you've cracked this wide open, Kirby. Well, it gets better. Oh. It gets better because, well, let me finish with Bill and Hillary Clinton. They bought their first house in Westchester in 1999. And then in 2016, they purchased the house next door for Chelsea's visit. Now in 1998, a year before Bill and Hillary Clinton decided to make the big move to Westchester, who decides to go in there and pluck down a little cash? Donald Trump. Mm. What does Donald Trump do? In 1998, he purchases the first parcel that will become known as the Trump National Golf Course in Westchester. He opens it to the public in 2002. This gets even weirder because Bill Clinton has been a member of the club since 2003 and Trump said publicly, publicly, this is being scrubbed as we speak, publicly, <laughs> that he bought the club partly because he knew Bill Clinton would need a place to play. Wow. <laughs> I know. Okay, one more tidbit on this story and then I'll move on. So in 2016, CNN and BuzzFeed had a photo that has been removed, scrubbed. But you know what? In 2016, I made a copy of this, of Donald Trump grabbing Clinton's privates on the golf course yes somebody took a photo of that now it's not online anymore but my question to you because you're a guy do men do that to each other because no woman grabs each other's privates you know it's like do guys do that is that a normal thing for men to do no that's a very threatening thing for a man to do like a very domination kind of power move well it happened in 2016, during the election, while he's bashing everybody, he's he's playing around with Bill Clinton. So I think that this is going to be good for your book because I think you probably have the right person. Good job. I'm doing a part two, Kirby, so I can put this stuff oh. in it. Oh, good for you. Good for you. Good for you. But you have to put put me down as a resource or something absolutely we'll get you in the bibliography and everything and so okay chapters everything 
So um, you want me to talk about what I think is going to happen with the trial? Well, we've got about five minutes left. So whatever you think is the most pertinent at this point, let's go with it. Okay, so I believe that the fourth victim was a mistake because the fourth victim extends the year to 2004 and Jeffrey Epstein's uh, non-prosecution agreement is very, very clear. It states that the time that this is good for is in or around 2001 or through in or around 2004. So before this fourth victim, and this fourth victim lives in the state of Florida. So now the defense can use that Ghislaine Maxwell is protected by Jeffrey Epstein's non-prosecution agreement. And I believe that they made an intentional mistake. I do not believe that this was uh, sort of like an unintentional, ill-advised move on their part. I think that it, uh, you know, we have something called, um, what's that thing that where you, you can do? I have it here. Wait, just give me one second because I, I can find it. We have the double jeopardy. So you, they could have taken the fourth victim and started a new thing because it adds two separate charges that are not included in the current case. And it would not have triggered the double jeopardy thing. Um, so they could have allowed the three victims to keep going forward, hit her with another thing, would not have triggered a double jeopardy. This is a mistake. I think it's intentional. That's where I will stay. Yeah, I mean, on a case that's under this much scrutiny, you know, nothing like that would be left to chance. So there might be something diabolical going on there. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on the show again, Sean, and good luck with the book. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, we put two different covers out and people voted on it. So we've got the cover. Everything's good to go. So should be out by the end of this month. And um, looking forward to seeing the reception to that one. And That's terrific. I'm just, getting asked, I'm just getting asked to check if our next guest is ready. Mm -hmm. Let's have a look. Um, yeah, you say I'm okay to finish up. Okay, All right. Well, so, have a good day, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for coming on on such short notice. Uh, I'm sorry. Thanks My for coming pleasure. on with with the technical difficulties today and and for hanging around for us. I really appreciate you spending that time. And I'll urge people to go down and support you on your links. And I'll probably see you on Twitter. Thank you so much, Sean. Have a nice day. Bye. All right. Take care, Kevin. Bye. Hello, hello, Sean. There you go, there you go. <laughs> Deep in the I'm just yeah, bloody, bloody jinx today, but better late than never. <laughs> it's a conspiracy, mate. You're being, you're being <laughs> up on the powers that be there. They're coming down on you. Oh, believe me, I've just been to the police station. They are coming down on me. Really? Why yeah, you... I've not I've not put that out on YouTube, but I've let my, my Patreons know. Um, I am being, I've been charged. I've got three charges. I've got contempt of court. I've got having a podcast guest on who named a victim of child sexual abuse. Uh, I've got two counts of that, and I've got contempt of court. So, wow. And the cop couldn't believe it. The cop was like, you know, I work for child protection. I interview pedophiles. You're on a mission to, you know, stop sex trafficking and stuff like that. We're on the same page. But this is coming down from above. I would recommend a caution. 
but it's out of my hands. They're pursuing it very aggressively for some reason, and it's up to the Crown Prosecution Service what happens to my, me now. So I'm, I'm, I'm waiting my sentence. That's that's crazy. It makes you think about what we say on these podcasts and and, and what we can suddenly get done for. Um, like if you're naming crimes committed by people, if you're making accusations or, or reporting, you know, criminal activities of people. Or, or politicians, or of, uh, corrupt police officers, or whoever. It's a minefield, and the things he, t- he told me that I could no longer do on on the channel, and he, he gave me a, you know all this protocol going forward. But it, it, it's so easy to fall foul of these laws, and it's what's sad is they're using laws to protect kids to go after activists who are protecting kids mm. instead of using them against the pedophiles. <laughs> so so yes yeah, it's crazy but let, let, let's let's get back to you so uh, in the introduction i've mentioned you've been on the channel a few times you've been on joe rogan I've, i was looking at your youtube channel today it looks like you're putting more content up there now yeah i'm just messing around when i get some spare time i'm always juggling a bunch of projects i'm working on a discovery channel documentary series right now about a uh um, a, a, a serious murder case, the massacre of, of nine women and children in northern Mexico, uh, which is, you follow that case, they were American citizens from these big Mormon communities. So these are communi- these are some people with polygamy, uh, multiple wives and large numbers of children, and there was this massacre. If you follow that in November 2019, where a bunch of cartel gunmen gunned them down. So we're doing a big investigative series on that which is which is a fascinating subject obviously very very sad and very sad for family members there and yeah i was just down in el salvador doing a big big story there big report there about the uh the new president and this gang truce um so yeah you're always juggling a bunch of stuff i want to get a chance putting some stuff up on youtube as well after try and follow your example Mm. of uh, creating these independent platforms well, I'm sure loads of people watching this are going to want to go and click on the link to your YouTube channel and subscribe. So let's start with the Mormons then. We've got a, a series of things we could talk about. What was the problem between the Mormons and the cartel? Why did this all ignite? So there's a, this a, a lot of different strands here. So basically you've got these Mormons who first went down to Mexico in the late 19th century when polygamy multiple marriage was made illegal in the united states they went to mexico where they could do this um and these communities were established and people going back and forth for many years there's a lot of crazy backstories about this one sect in the 1970s by a guy called Irville, known as the mormon manson who started killing other people so there's a lot of these kind of crazy backstories around in the community but the this latest attack I mean, I don't want to give away too much. Uh, we get some quite interesting stuff in the investigation and the case files, and there's kind of is an ongoing big criminal case. You know, there's um, you know people who've been arrested and giving testimonies and, and, and all kinds of stuff. But it looks like the Juarez cartel did this. Uh, basically, where these Mormons live is right in a divided territory between the Juarez cartel and the Sinaloa cartel. They're two massive cartels controlling this area. They're controlling drug trafficking. They're also controlling people smuggling up that corridor. This is, it's your, this is your old neck of the woods. It's right uh, 
by the Arizona border. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I had operations that are going to Tijuana and, and the Gales and Puerto yeah. Piasco. Yeah, yeah. And how far from the border were you incarcerated? How far from that Arizona border? So I was incarcerated in uh, Buckeye, Florence, Tucson, and in Sheriff Joe Pyro's jail. Tucson, yeah. Tucson would be closest to the border, wouldn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, yeah. Just, so, so it's around that area, so south of the border there. You've got a Sinaloa cartel operating on the Sonora side. So they've got all the money from the drugs up there, but also the people. It's a big corridor for people going in without papers into the United States, people crossing the desert, going through tunnels, you know, jumping the wall, all kinds of stuff. So the cartel makes a lot of money from that. If you're going over that corridor, basically you have to pay the cartel. They've also got a bunch of money from petrol, uh, selling petrol to these isolated communities, stealing petrol, reselling it. Over on the Chihuahua side, they've got a bunch of things there. They're into also into, on both sides, gold mining. They're getting into in a big way. So there's a big uh, like uh, line, front line between the cartels, and there's like fighting over, and it looks like the, the Juarez cartel are trying to push over that line. Their mentality is they send 40 gunmen, 50 gunmen, 100 gunmen over that line into the enemy territory. And they'll shoot anything that moves. They consider anybody in that territory to be like a legitimate target for them. So even when it's going there and it's women and children, they'll go right up and, you know, like shoot them. And what they then do is they then bring out the local sicarios to come out and they'll engage them then in fighting. So that's the most likely reason. Now, there's a lot of different... Uh, theories about this on the side i mean if you look at the hill where they did kill one car of, of women and children then this hill they have a very clear vantage point where they can see the mormon community where they can see the targets they hit with like these mini me machine guns and stuff um there's a lot of different other other other, other ideas about there could be things involved but basically it looks like this turf war was the key thing there so is the Mormon community armed to the teeth down there, or is it guns are illegal? So there, there's certainly some guns around. Uh, <laughs> one of the, the strategies, um, there's Mormon communities. I mean, there's several communities. There's a whole bunch of different families. Um, so the LeBarons are one very, very famous one, but you've also got the Langfords. You've also got you know, all these different families there. And the... The Baron family now that they they decide they tried to lead these big marches in Mexico against the violence. So about just before the pandemic, around January last year, they were leading these big marches, and everyone was they were trying to get together other victims of violence, saying we all got to march. Everyone's got to stand up. We can't have this level of violence in the country because it is insane the amount of civilians who are being killed here. I mean, when you've got a mass grave with two hundred ninety eight bodies, and when you've got um, just endless endless uh, people you know innocent people kids being killed it's like at what point can society stand up and say we can't stand for this anymore so they tried to involve with other people and, and and the idea that everyone would like rise up and these marches there was this way very few people it was kind of sad when they got to the the central square in mexico city the main plaza in mexico city like marching for peace there were people there screaming at them saying you know you're you're like gringo agents trying to bring down the the Americans to do drone strikes and this kind of thing, which is kind of sad. So I was up there again last week and they've changed tactic and said, well, the only thing we've got to do is create an armed community. 
um, and they're following some of these communities who have these what they call outer defenses, these vigilante groups. You seen the movie Cartel Land? Yes. Yeah. So that looks at the vigilantes. Yeah. So they're trying to follow that same thing. Um, and they had in fact one of the guys from from Michoacan State, which is where that's filmed. They had one of them up there in in Chihuahua and advising them on how we can how they can legally create um, this idea of saying, well, we're different. You know, we've got our self determination as a people. We're going to have a bunch of guns. Um, have, have a bunch of AR-15s and, and defend ourselves. Um, so you get more armed camps around Mexico, yeah. So do they have to apply for a special license to get guns? Because there's serious consequences for guns, isn't there, in Mexico? It's it's, it's, it's a weird mixed bag. I mean, in theory, um, you, you should go to this place, apply for a license, very hard to get high-powered weapons. But what they're trying to do is invoke this idea that some of the indigenous groups in Mexico have, um, which is saying that we've got a kind of right to self-government. We've got a right to self-defense. And that goes back to things like the Zapatistas of people saying we could just like have guns and defend ourselves and kind of have our own laws in this, in this area, in this town. Wow. Um, so kind of do that, do that kind of thing. So uh, <laughs> take up arms. And have some of them fled the community or are they getting reinforcements coming over from America? What, how's that working out? So some of them indeed have, uh, have fled. A lot of them go back and forth anyway. Um, they're very interesting people, uh, very interesting like culture, like cross-border culture. They like playing, some of them like playing some high-stakes poker. <laughs> I need to practice my, uh, my Texas Hold'em, hold'em skills to get, to get back up there. Um, you know, range of beliefs. Uh, some of them, there are some people still with multiple wives and, and there's, there's people there with 50 children. Um, and there's some who just like uh, are you know younger generation who are just like atheists or agnostic, but they grow up in that community, and and just like live you know live in a in a in a different way. All right. So the huge news then has been this Mexico City train line collapse. What happened? So uh, there's so it's the metro system or the, the 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 underground train system, but it has some parts of it which go overground like this. And it's the same in, in in there. I haven't been on the on the on the metro in London for so long, on the subway in London for so long. I don't even, don't even know what to call it anymore. Um, but when you get there, those lines up to like Watford, <laughs> you know, like you know, <laughs> because my uh, my grandparents used to live in Watford. Get lines right up there, and it like goes overground. Um, so it's the same thing. Kind of these parts of the of, of the of the subway, parts of the of the underground go overground on these like overpasses. So uh, one of those with a train. And it suddenly, the you have like a metal structure just totally collapsed, and the train carriage was like broken too, like that, just broken the middle in half. So one guy who survived it, he he said he described him as his complete nightmare, travel nightmare. He described how he was on the train, and you know you just you know going home from work, it was ten twenty in the evening, and literally the like ground disappears gravity disappears and like what's going on and suddenly he knows he's on the roof like thrown off and he grabs something people are falling out oh. of this like broken end of the train and he grabs something and manages to you know stumble out um and, and he's okay uh but no no real tragedy i mean the the death toll i mean 24 last count i saw 24 dead um uh, a lot more injured, some quite severely. You know, children. There, there was you know mothers out there like suddenly wondering, you know, where's my, 
14 year old son he was on that train and i can't get hold of him um and you know usual story here it's like is there corruption involved like how come they didn't fix the uh the train <laughs> track the, the, the structures there's people saying that back in um 2017 after the earthquake they were photographing this was really badly damaged and it wasn't really fixed and some people were saying they were photographing these these bridges last year and showing they look really crooked so how come this wasn't fixed where was the money was it was it like a, a scam job um it makes you it does make you living here like all of these things when you live here um however messed up the uk is and and certainly it's been particularly weird i think uh during the pandemic I, mean, I haven't been there during the whole pandemic in the uk but imagine it's been very very weird but you realize some of this basic stuff when you don't have it when you don't have like basic infrastructures messed up you realize there's things you do have as, you know we do have a society in the uk that sometimes you know you, we can overlook so are some companies under investigation then for whoever contracted you know that that shoddy work yeah well there's a they, they, they brought in a norwegian company to investigate this <laughs> it's like it's like sad to say there's like a distrust among <laughs> you know their own companies like bringing foreigners to come and you know audit this um, but also audit the government who made this, and 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 one of the it was made by a guy called Marcelo Abrad, who's current. He he was the mayor who oversaw the construction of this line. He's currently the foreign secretary, and he's a contender for the president of Mexico. So oh, wow. is, yeah, it all brings up big politics, you know, right to the top. Yeah. All right then. So you've got something to say about the weapons industry in America exacerbating the destruction of central america yeah yes sure so i I mean i've been looking at uh the violence in you know we know in el salvador honduras guatemala those countries for a long time and that and those countries are where we've seen right now in the us this big uh they use the word surge which is a bit of a loaded word because you know surge of of people but like a, a large amount of people being arrested walking into the united states over the southern border or turning up and trying to get a refugee status in the us um a lot of uh teenagers have been turning up so they've been taken into in detention in the us there's really big uh crowded uh facilities in texas and a bunch of us states of these kids from central america so you know i've been looking at this violence in those countries for many years um and there are a couple of things now i mean one thing is that this, this the circles it is this gun thing go around i mean what goes around comes around um the us there's still these big iron rivers of guns going to those countries um big uh from miami is one of the big places a bunch of these ships leave miami leave leave florida just go right down over the caribbean to the central american countries it boxes full of guns and and you know the gun violence there is is, is totally nuts some of the weapons and some of the stuff being used is going back to those um civil wars back in the 1980s and i know you're fond of uh, a lot of the investigations into into the, <laughs> the the players there but there's boxes of grenades that are that have been sitting in stockpiles there for years and they're also out there in the streets kind of being used um but also i've got a big uh, big investigation on this latest uh, president in el salvador um, who's and he's got this he's quite a controversial figure uh he he just won his party just won a bunch of 
uh, seats to control the Congress there, and then they started firing the Attorney General and really taking power. But one of the big things about him is that there's this, this real reduction in violence, and the 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 allegation is this because because of a truce between the main gangs there, between the MS13 gang and the Barrio 18, Barrio 18 gang. So uh, this weapons flow used to be justified by the war against communism. We were arming the right. How is it justified these days? Is, is it still going on, left versus right in those countries? Well, it's interesting. I mean, a, lot, okay, a lot of this stuff is like, obviously, it's like illegal guns being smuggled. So it's you know so you know it's against the law, but it's it's happening. But it was interesting, uh, interesting stuff. Uh, where there was one guy who was supplying a bunch of Honduran gun traffickers, and he was selling like a thousand weapons to these guys. And he believed that these actually connected to the Honduran right wing forces who knocked out a left wing president in two thousand. Nine uh, this is when uh, there, there was a coup there in 2009 and the, the president was marched out in his pajamas at gunpoint. Wow. Since then, you've had other these right-wing presidents in there. And right now, you've got this case where the president of Honduras is accused, has been accused in U.S. courts of being involved in drug trafficking. <laughs> so, so you've got this like all these kind of crazy links there. Now, when this one guy was say sold more than a thousand guns to these Honduran traffickers, and he said, "Well, how come no one was stopping me? I thought I thought the U.S. government must be in favour of this, because if they're letting me do this, they must be in favour because they, the guns are going to the right people." That was part of his argument he used when he when he was caught, um, and he said it was kind of you know the the, the scam thing. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know. I think some of it's just simply they don't clamp down on this stuff i mean some of it's like um there is some bad play there obviously there's still these kind of cia ops around and who the, you know who guns go to or whatever but some of it i i don't know if, if they want these countries to be this this messed up and this many bodies being around but it's like they just it's just like politics is broken and they just don't you know they don't get around to fixing any of this stuff but and there's a lot of money being made from that chaos as well. So um, we've got about 10 minutes left. I'm going to ask the viewers if they have any questions while I continue to ask questions. So I'm curious now, you know, in the very beginning of the pandemic, I interviewed a lot of people about it. And they said the average time length for a pandemic is about three years. And these things move around the world. So, you know, one minute you think it's gone and the next minute it's back. We're seeing Brazil, India, just you know, get hit really hard right now. Where is Mexico with the pandemic and how are the cartels operating around pandemic restrictions? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, the pandemic, uh, there's been a lot of people have died. You know, according to the, 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 in any counts, there's been a lot of people who have died. And I know personally some people who have died. Uh, it's certainly been very broad here. Uh, the hospitals got pretty full for a while. We seem to be over the worst now. And this is this is really, I think, even before the vac there's vaccination happening, but already I think it might be just like an immunity that's gathered among people. The but even before the, the, the vaccination is really kicking in, you know. Uh, are you vaccinated, Sean? No, I didn't. But when you say, you know, it's, you seem to be over the worst, 
Does that mean you're over the worst of the most recent wave and it could potentially another wave could come back? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, uh, you know, you know I've, I don't know. I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was really trying to do a, my you know, hardest work as a journalist to really understand the numbers and, and really make sense of this. One thing I realised is that so many of the, all these predictions seem to be wrong. N no one seems to know. Um, so we can kind of report on, on what's happening, report on, like, you know, there's a lot of people dying. Now, the lockdown here was never very severe. And that was a good thing from my point of view. Uh, they tried a severe lockdown down in Colombia. And they had, like, you know, soldiers going around the neighbourhoods and, and, like, they had a lot of, um, you know, real intimidation. Right now, Colombia's kicking off big time. I think mean, part of that's because they were like really locked down and really held down, and people got you know shut you know shut up, and they still got a bunch of deaths anyway. They still didn't 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 really make a mistake. So here they never really got locked down. It's been pretty slack. Um, I don't know what's it like with pubs in the UK. Like so here bars are meant to be closing at ten thirty, um, but there's a lot of lock-ins happening. Um, we're, 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 our pubs have been closed for months. They're just opening beer gardens now only. Just only beer gardens. You can't yeah. sit and a pint still. Can't go in a pub. Yeah. So, so I want to try and get back to the UK. So I have to try and plan this around. I, I think later on this month, I think it's the middle of this month, I'm guessing that the pubs are opening with social distancing. Mm. Um, okay, so 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 we'll see there. Um but anyway, so so this this I mean seems to be over the worst. Um we'll see. I mean, maybe a will come back, maybe it'll come back less, maybe immunity is being you know gathered or you know, whatever. Um, in terms of the cartels, uh, so when we talked before, I think I mentioned about the cartels doing their own handouts um, early on in the pandemic, where the cartels were actually giving out goodie bags full of uh, like rice and eggs and milk and stuff to people and videoing this and saying, we're the good guys, we're helping you out. Here you go. Here's the uh, here's goodie bags full of, full of, uh, full of food and stuff. Um, in terms of getting drugs to the US, they, I mean, they've been operating as normal. Um, they've been managing to, it seems, if you look at the seizures numbers, they've been getting them. I mean, and, and it's like, they find a way. It's very hard to stop that, you know, as we've discussed. And the US demand, it seemed, there was a, it was a, 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 a the demand was going down for some drugs, like party drugs, like cocaine. Demand went down this last year because there were less parties, but demand went up for uh, heroin, fentanyl, these kind of drugs because people were locked up. People, I think, in the US. I mean, last year was the record year for overdose deaths. Mm. So I think the, the the opioid situation in the US has got has got worse now. Um, so yeah, interesting. I mean, like, how, how do you feel? We, you know, we discussed it before about like drug uh, legalization, and how do you feel about heroin? About like what to do about heroin? About those kind of hard drugs? I mean, we we, we totally agreed on, on legalizing marijuana. And yeah, I mean, I think Portugal's um, positive results. If you're not criminalizing people with the hardest core addiction, which is heroin, is one of them. If you're not criminalizing them 
then they're more likely to speak to the health teams because they're not going to be scared of getting arrested and you're going to be able to counsel some of them off the drugs. That's what happened in Portugal. So I think they would adopt, I would hope they would adopt that worldwide. That's what, I guess that's one thing, uh, decriminalisation of, like if you, if you arrest somebody with, who's got a small stash of heroin, you're not going to put them in prison. Yeah. I agree with that. There's no point in putting somebody in prison who's just like taking heroin, you know, they've got, um, but what, but what, what do you mean? What do you think about the actual sale? Like, how should like Portugal's decriminalized the use, but it's still illegal to sell heroin? It's still they're still like the cartels or criminals are still running that. So my my thing is that the government has made worthless plants more valuable than gold by creating drug laws, and the government should therefore therefore um, take over those industries and take it out of the hands of the criminals. Then all the murder, the mayhem, you know, these dodgy deals on the side streets and the people's houses that could get raided at any moment or you could get ripped off or some crazy person could show up. All that's eliminated. You're never going to stop people taking drugs. There's always going to be fatalities and overdoses and, and harm caused. All we can do now is go for harm reduction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm totally on, on board with you there. What I wonder is, like, say with marijuana right now, they're like, you know, in the US, you've got like the rules about you can have your dispensary and you can sell it. They're actually doing that in Mexico as well. They've legalized, uh, or, or they're, they're trying to get this has been stuck in discussion for some time, but they're trying to move on to legalize um, marijuana and actually, you know, show, show selling marijuana. But can we actually have like allow shops and give them licenses to, to sell heroin or just turn a blind eye? On, 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 I mean, can we actually say to a shop, okay, if, if somebody goes, I want to sell heroin in a shop, can we say, well, you know, like, here's your, uh, here's your smack license? Um, I think that my preference would be that heroin users, rather than going to criminals to get their fix, should have an opportunity to go to some kind of government regulated environment where they could get their fix. And some on the basis that someone will come in and counsel them to try and get them off the drugs, I think that will be better for society. But we've, we're almost about to run out of time. We've got a couple of questions that have just come in. We'll have to, we'll have to be very okay. quick with quick with these. Um, so we're being asked about George Young. Yeah, um, we've, that's a big story, isn't it? And also human trafficking on the Mexican border. They're the two questions, basically. Right. If, if you've got a couple of minutes to summarise. Yeah, 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 no worries. Yeah. Of course, yeah, hey to the, to the people. Um, George Young, um, yeah, just passed away today. Um, Boston George Young. People know him from the movie Blow, based on his life. He's interesting. He, so he, he was, I mean, it, it shows that Americans, it was a lot of Americans started the smuggling going, you know, from South America to the United States. And then, you know, the Mexicans and the Colombians took over over the years. He, he, he described when he first went down to Mexico to buy weed in 1967, when he was like a, a university dropout. And he went down to, he'd seen a film called Night of the Iguana. And that film has stuff from the, the city called Puerto Vallarta, which is on the Pacific coast. So he went down there to try and find, like, I want to buy, you know, I want to buy weed, but I want to buy you know, some serious, serious amounts. It took him two weeks wandering around till he find somebody who said he had a connection with the military to get him a bunch of, bunch of, bunch of weed. Then he started doing a thing of stealing planes to take it up. One of the weird things about him is that he was flying marijuana straight over the border into the United States. 
And if and I've talked to a pilot who in who's in prison right now in North Carolina, but him back in the eighties, he was still flying right over the border with, with with planes full of cocaine. Like right over, you know, you you still turn your lights off in the plane and you just like fly, you know, that point you just fly over Baja California into California in the eighties still, because before they started gearing it up now and having more radars and all that kind of thing. Um and then you know, George Young hooked up uh, with Carlos Leda, the Colombian, when he was arrested, he got arrested uh, for marijuana, hooked up with him, and then hooked up with the whole Pablo Escobar thing of moving cocaine. It was a bit of a middleman. But even then, they were still flying cocaine straight, you know, like Colombia to, to the US uh, then before, before a lot of it cracked down. Um, and then eventually did a, a long, long stretch before he came out in 2014. Um, I think he did like three or four decades in prison and came out in 2014 and, and passed away. So, so quite, quite a character and uh, human trafficking. The way people describe it is, or, or the, the, the legal language people use for this is human smuggling means um, basically when you pay somebody and you want to, you want to get to the U S you pay somebody to go in, they call that human smuggling, but you're voluntarily smuggling, being smuggled. <laughs> you know, like you, and so the price right now for you, like basically if you want to get to the US, the people you pay are the cartels. <laughs> They're the ones who run the US border. Um, and the price, it varies, I think, from Mexico. It's about $5,000 right now um, to get into the US. Um, from Central America, it's, it's it's a lot more. You're going all the way from Honduras to El Salvador. A lot of what you pay is you're paying to be taken into the US and taken to a destination inside. If you get kicked back, you normally get a second chance. Um, but yeah, this is still it's still open. There's still ways in for people. Um, human trafficking is more like the forced uh, people forced against their will. So that's where we get to things like sex trafficking. Uh, there's a one group um, in a, in a place a state called Tlaxcala, and there's one town there with a big history of sex trafficking of teenage girls. And they will take some of them up to the United States, up to New York, up to Texas, and prostitute them against their will. And I, I, I spoke to one uh, woman who'd been uh, trafficked as a victim here in Mexico City, um, and she was you know, part of a group where she'd been freed. Their tactic is they basically go around to these small villages and they kind of hang around outside schools, find teenage girls, and they go and they they get them to fall in love with them. They get them to become their their girlfriends. These kind of girls in small towns. And then once they get them, they'll bring them in and then they'll like push them into this into prostitution. They've got weird ceremonies in this town. Apparently, this town's had a tradition of doing this for generations. And they've got like weird ceremonies in this town where they'll do things like the babies being born. They'll like have these like ceremony like shamanic ceremonies saying you know this person's gonna have this power and this control over women to do this stuff so it's kind of really weird culture kind of baked in of this kind of abusive thing now to be honest um in my research this sex trafficking is only a small part of the prostitution across mexico it's got i mean if you look at tijuana with very very big levels of prostitution most of it isn't this like forced sex trafficking um, it's only one part of it, but it's yeah, it's a very, very nasty business. Wow, absolutely fascinating, Johan. Really appreciate you coming on. 
like I said to the viewers, all your links are going to be down there in the description box. I've read your books, way more information in your books. So people, please support Johan's work. Check out his YouTube channel now. He's posting more videos, and let's um, love to have a chat with you again at some point here in the near future. So thanks for your time. Yeah, and then next time I want to interview you, Sean. So you definitely, uh, the, the next one's me interviewing you. Uh, I'm going to bring you on and have a good sit down, uh, good sit down talk. Uh, well, well look, are you, when are you coming back to London? Uh, I'd like to try and make it there in like uh, late June, early uh, July. So yeah, maybe because maybe we're, we're we're doing spots for our studio right now for June, July. So. If you want to, if you want to come back in the studio, that would be great, and you know I'd reciprocate, and you can interview me, whatever. We know yeah. what would be really good is if we could get Carlos Leda. Yeah, you need Carlos Leda or, or, or some 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 bring in some other some players, some real players in there. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's talk, Sean. Let's talk. We, we could do some big things. All right, you have a great rest of your Wednesday. Thank you. All. Okay. Cheers. Take, Take care, care, my friend. Bye bye. 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 Thanks. Hey, David. How's it going, man? Hey, Sean, how's it going? We're here. They did this not is... want us to broadcast this tonight because it's been, this is the sixth attempt to get this live. It has taken for this to go through. So huge apologies to you guys for uh, being on standby. Huge apologies to the viewers for being on standby for this, but it, it, it is such important information. The whole evening's program now is running 30 minutes behind, so we'll have to give the other guests heads up. So without any further ado, you guys know David Whitehead. He's been on here multiple times. Really well-researched in various topics, including cults, the occult, deviant behavior in Hollywood, trafficking. And I have actually watched programs on Scientology, and I've seen Mike in action. So thank you very much for coming on, Mike. Really appreciate it. Hi, Sean. Hi, David. Nice to be here. Finally. <laughs> Finally, yes. Nice to meet so, you, Mike. So I'll let David um, segue in with a little introdu introduction then before we start the questions for Mike. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for uh, bringing me on here, Sean. Really appreciate it. This is an honor. Uh, Mike, I've been following you for uh, some time and I'm really happy to have this opportunity to ask you some questions and chat with you and happy to be on this platform. Um, I'm just an independent researcher curious about these subjects. Um, and I produced a series a couple of years ago on cults called Cults of Death and Power, where I looked at all types of different cults, uh, starting in California. Something's going on in California. I don't know what's going on over there. Um, and then going into different parts of the world, going into the ancient world, um, looking at a lot of current events and, and different structures and things that we see from the framework of what I learned from researching different cults and comparative religion, mythology, etc. So I'm just a curious person. I want to know what the truth is. And that's my mission. So uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And you're a very level headed person. So you got all these crazies going into these conspiracy theories. But I think what really resonates with the viewers is where you draw the line. So all your links will be in the description box below. And yours as well, Mike, and I urge the viewers to please support the work both of these guys are doing. Mike, do you want to introduce yourself to the viewers, please? Sure. My name is Mike Rinder. I was uh, raised in the Church of Scientology and ended up uh, devoting my life, or well, the first part of my life at least, to being um, a full-time staff member, actually a C organization member in Scientology 
And, you know, I rose in the ranks in Scientology to become the international spokesperson of Scientology. I was on the board of the Church of Scientology International. I was also the head of the Office of Special Affairs. I left in 2007, or I escaped in 2007. And since about 2009, I have been doing everything I possibly can to uh, tell the truth about what really goes on inside the inner sanctum of Scientology. And where were you in life? How old were you? What was your worldview when you first became interested in Scientology? Uh, Sean, I was six or five and my parents got involved in Australia. Hubbard went there to deliver some lectures. Our next door neighbor, as a matter of fact, uh, went from my hometown of Adelaide to Melbourne to see Hubbard do these lectures and came home with these great stories of the, the prodigal uh, L. Ron Hubbard. And that's what caused my parents initially to have an interest and get involved. And then I was really raised in a, what became a Scientology household, operating on the principles of Scientology, which uh, laid out by the founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard. And when I say the principles of Scientology, I mean, Hubbard wrote about everything. He was a prolific writer on the subject of Scientology. He delivered thousands of lectures and his words are considered to be in Scientology, the word of God. And so he covered sort of everything. Like th this guy um, had an opinion and an expertise, at least uh, self-proclaimed expertise on everything. So sort of every aspect of your life is in some ways covered by, well, what does Ron say? Ron is the, the name that Scientologists sort of use reverentially for Hubbard. And there is a sort of a saying in Scientology amongst Scientologists, if you don't know what to do, ask yourself, what would Ron do? So my entire life was bound up in the idea that the answers to every problem, the answers to everything about your existence, about the survival of mankind, the future of the planet, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to how do you wash windows was to be found in the words of L. Ron Hubbard. Do you have a question, David? Well, I uh, firstly just wanted to say that from my research on different cults, and this is what fascinated me, was that we've got different types of ideologies that are classified as cults. And the big questions that people ask are, how do you differentiate between a cult or a religion or just a philosophy? Um, and I think your story, Mike, is what really helps people understand how to differentiate that. Because would you agree with me that a lot of the cults, including Scientology, will have a dose of truth mixed into it or something that appeals to people at the very least? Um, when you read a lot of different things in Scientology, or I've, I've spoken to people that are part of that on a lower level, 
um, you'll find yourself agreeing with certain things, right? Like I myself have a fascination with ancient history and uh, free energy technology and the question of, are we alone in the universe? And could there be a blending between science and religion that would actually work and serve mankind? And, you know, um, I have questions about the medical industry, uh, the direction that it's gone and the pharmaceutical industry and things like that. Um, and, you know, always looking for alternatives and we all want freedom and we all want peace amongst each other. And we all want solutions to these problems that we all face. And then the poison sneaks in after. So you get the entry level. Uh, there's an old saying that I came across called, it, it kind of goes like this by way of the promise, good men are enslaved. And so what's the promise of Scientology that attracts people into it? that in my opinion has to be layered with certain truths in order to attract human consciousness to it. So what's the promise of Scientology that brings people in? Okay, that's a fabulous question. And let me just say, yes, there is no doubt that there are a lot of things in Scientology that people can agree with. I mean, if it was just complete bullshit, nobody would get involved. I mean, you have to have some something that is appealing about it in order to attract people. And certainly at the lower levels or the introductory levels of Scientology, the idea is, is put forth that you will be able to improve your life. You'll be able to have better relationships with your family and friends. You'll be able to solve why it is that you have emotional upsets or why you have unwanted pains in your body, or even a, on a grander scale, this idea that we can, we can sort of, rev in Scientology, the expression is reverse the dwindling spiral of mankind and make a better world for everyone to live in, a world without war, without insanity, where free men are able to rise to greater heights. This is the, the promise of Scientology. And it is a, a very, you know, I have an analogized it to the old uh, expression that the, the way you boil a frog is you put him in the cold water and slowly turn up the heat. And eventually, if you put, if you drop him in boiling water, he just jumps out. If it's gradually getting warmer and warmer, he gets lulled into a sense of security and ends up being a boiled frog. And that's what happens to people in Scientology. There are things that they find that are truths that work, that help them. And they believe that then what's coming afterwards is also going to have the same effect. And when it doesn't, they're looking for the next thing. Oh, well, it did, this didn't exactly accomplish what I hoped, but maybe the next one will, because there's always the hope that this promise of eternal spiritual freedom and enlightenment is just around the corner. The next thing will bring that into full realization. And, you know, the, my answer to the question, what's the difference between a religion and a cult? is a really sim simplistic one and maybe too simplistic. But my answer is, take a look at what happens when you try to leave or when you have left. If you leave 
the Catholic Church, or you become a lapsed Jew, or you're no longer going to a Christian church or whatever, nothing much happens. If you leave Scientology, you are hounded. If you leave Scientology and you speak up and say things they don't like, they seek to destroy you. And that doesn't happen in like mainstream regular religions. And if I could ask a quick follow-up on that, Sean, because this, I, and you answered my two questions there, Mike, I really appreciate that. And I agree with you. Um, so if you were a part, if, if I, I heard some of your interviews where you were talking about how you actually were a part of one of the, uh, I guess, one of the arms of this that would basically seek out and destroy the enemies of Scientology. There's a way that they process their enemies. They've relied on research from Sun Tzu and all this kind of stuff um, of how to basically target people that they consider enemies. And I think that was a huge that's a huge element that people can look to to see how a cult can differentiate from uh, some of these other things, right? Ab absolutely. Absolutely. And I was the head of what's called the Office of Special Affairs in Scientology, which was a, uh, a rebooting and renaming of the original arm of Scientology. It was called the Guardian's Office. And the Guardian's Office... Uh, conducted uh, an enormous campaign against the United States and other governments and ultimately were caught. And the leaders of the Guardian's office ended up being uh, going to federal prison in the United States, including L. Ron Hubbard's wife, uh, for infiltrating, spying on, stealing material documents, trying to destroy people, et cetera, et cetera. So what is so unique about Scientology and, and perhaps even unique in the realm of cults is that the idea is Hubbard wrote everything that is the scripture of Scientology. And if it isn't written by Hubbard, it's not considered to be pure Scientology. So these practices of destroying your enemies and going after people and finding out what they're seeking to protect and threatening it and hiring private investigators, et cetera. They're all written down by L. Ron Hubbard. They are actually the policies of Scientology. They are contained in his writings. And though they didn't used to be publicly available with the advent of the internet, they are uh, widely available now. I mean, I have a blog and I have all of these things on my blog of let Hubbard describing here is how you go about destroying someone who is saying something that we don't like about Scientology. And there is another aspect to this, which I think also goes along with every cult and perhaps also with a lot of religions, but the idea of us versus them that we are the only people who have the true faith, the true beliefs, the true answers. In Scientology, you say, we have the technology, and the technology is the writings of L. Ron Hubbard that tell you how to conduct your life and how to save the planet, that everybody else is ignorant. Everybody else is uninformed at best and 
intent upon the destruction of mankind at worst. And that creates um, an end justifies the means mindset that becomes very dangerous. You believe that the survival of Scientology and the well-being of Scientology is the single most important thing on earth. It is what will allow the world to survive, what will allow every man, woman, and child on earth to attain spiritual freedom. So the, the actions that are taken to seek to destroy people who are designated as enemies of Scientology are very well justified. I mean, it was very well justified in my head when I was doing it. These people are seeking the destruction of mankind. I'm doing something that is saving mankind from these horrible people. So I'm interested, Mike, then, in your own path. You said you got into this at age six through the family. So as a young person... How did you interact with other kids? Were you allowed around non-Scientology kids? Did they treat you differently? And what was your education like? And what was the first work you put in for Scientology? Okay, well, when I was growing up, I was in Australia. And, in a, and that was in the, the 1960s. And in Australia at that time, Scientology was effectively banned based on an inquiry, a government inquiry in the state of Victoria. And so there were very few Scientologists in Adelaide where I grew up. Like, and to the outside world, I was just a normal kid going to school. I went to a public, you know, actually a private school, but I went to normal schools and Nobody at those schools even knew I was a Scientologist or my family was Scientologists at all. Within our family and the connection to the few other families in the community who were Scientologists, we were like a little enclave of believers and everybody else was the heathens. In Scientology, the, the word for non-Scientologists is wogs. Hubbard coined that, well, he did Hubbard took that term and calls non-Scientologists wogs. And the wog world is a, the bad world that is uninformed and unenlightened by the brilliance of L. Ron Hubbard. And I existed in the wog world in when I went to school, when I you know, played cricket, what, whatever I was doing, I was in the wog world. And at home, I was in the real world, the Scientology world. And when I graduated high school, I very quickly thereafter joined what is known in Scientology as the C organization. And the C organization is the dedicated elite core of Scientology of people who devote themselves 24-7 to accomplishing the aims of Scientology, living communally, working communally, uh, you sign a billion-year contract to commit yourself to eternity in achieving the aims of Scientology because Scientologists believe that you live lifetime after lifetime. Your spirit departs this body and will, will uh, 
take on a new one that you've lived for millions of years before and you'll go on for millions of years in the future and that you will devote the entirety, the eternity of your future to the achieving these aims of Scientology. So when it's, I was- Sorry, Mike, sorry to jump in, but yeah. it's actually a billion year contract? Like that's not hyperbole, that's- No, no, billion with a B. Oh my and yeah, I mean, you can see, David, you can see I've got it on, on a number of places on my blog and you can just Google Sea Org contract and it'll come up. And, you know, obviously that's not an enforceable legal contract. I mean, you can't, <laughs> you'd look like a complete idiot walking into court saying like this guy signed a billion year contract and he violated his contract, but it, it has, um, perhaps the more powerful uh, enforcement method than the court system, which is the Scientology system. The, the idea that you uh, should never break that agreement and turn against the, the group that is the group saving mankind is a way more powerful uh, control mechanism than the threat of a court order. So yeah, it's a billion years. And that is a, a sort of an indicator of the level of commitment that is required and expected of people who are at the top echelon of Scientology. You are a, a dyed in the wool, true believer. And the entire senior echelon of Scientology is composed of members of the C organization. Well, go for it, David. You ask him a question and I'll ask him one after that. We'll take turns. <laughs> that sounds good. This, <laughs> is, this is like a, 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 like a tag team. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Okay. So my next question, you just said it a little moment ago about uh, living communally. Um, I've done a lot of research on uh, different political systems, economic systems. I have a deep interest in that. And I was always curious about, you know, I went into a segment on, on my series about what I was calling political cults, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You think of like Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin, you know, the whole gang, maybe even some people that are alive today. Uh, but anyways, uh, and I was thinking if a cult has they have to have an operating system that's going to attract the members keep them in line keep them engaged would you say that system is like a centrally planned economy kind of structure or essentially planned almost like communistic type structure where you have the central authority of the l ron hubbard uh team and the directors and everything and then they dictate down so it'd be like a compartmentalized pyramidical type structure with a central controlled, centrally planned communal based ideology. Would that, does that sound about right? Yes, that's absolutely right, David. I don't want you to get the idea though that the, the members of the C organization or the top of that pyramid hierarchy are, are uh, the majority. The majority are the people at the bottom. And Scientology, this pyramid, has the senior echelons of Scientology are Sea Org members. And then around the world, there are various Scientology organizations. And those organizations, for the most part, are manned, staffed by people who are called Scientology staff members. And they sign a five-year contract. And they commit themselves to five years 
for the benefit or to work in the local Scientology church, for a better word. They call it an organization uh, or orgs, Scientology orgs. And below that are the people that give the money, the parishioners of Scientology, the people who are out in the world working day to day or inheriting money or being a film star or whatever it is that they do, who come into Scientology organizations and hand over their money in exchange for, in some cases, services that are provided by Scientology. And in other cases, just straight up, here's some money to forward the aims of Scientology. So the pyramid is like large at the bottom with people who haven't signed any contract. They are only committed to the ideology of Scientology. And then you have the next level, which is the staff of the local Scientology organizations around the world. And then you have the very top, which is the C organization where, and that's the only place where you have communal living and everything is provided for you, you know, your healthcare, your clothes, your food, your shelter, everything. Uh, C org members get paid basically nothing. They, they don't earn a regular wage because the idea is that they have no need for a regular wage because everything's being provided by the C org. Of course, the big downside to that is it leaves you in a position of having nothing. So it's, it, it's one of the things that holds people in and prevents them from leaving the C organization is the fact that they don't have any money. A bunch of them don't have driver's licenses. They don't have bank accounts. They, they are like completely shut off from the world operating in a cocoon or a bubble of Scientology C organization. And the outside world is, pre is presented as a, a horribly scary place where you're likely to shrivel up and die very quickly if you leave the protection of the C organization. So to rise up to become the head of external threats for the Church of Scientology must have took considerable time. What was your entry-level position and how many different levels did you have to go through to get to there? Okay, well, my entry-level position, um, the, the reason that it's called the C organization is because in 1967, L. Ron Hubbard was being pursued by various governments, particularly the British and US governments and the media. And he had been living in England uh, in Sussex near East Grinstead in a home uh, manor house that he bought there called St. Hill. And he decided that the, the climate was getting too hot and he was gonna go uh, buy a boat and sail around in the ocean where he was outside the, the purview of governmental agencies. Because once you're in international waters, you're pretty much home free. So he bought this he bought actually three boats, but the one that he lived on was called the Apollo. And my first job in Scientology was a deckhand on the Apollo. I was a, you know, scrub the decks and, and 
chip the rust and paint the, the bulkheads and the, out the exterior of the ship. Um, I held many, many positions in Scientology before, and, and a lot of them have enormously complicated acronyms and and they're very it, like it takes like forever to explain what the hell does that mean and what exactly did you do there but i i held a lot of different positions from when i joined in 1973 until i became the head of the office of special affairs in the mid 80s and I then sort of bounced back and forth between the head of Office of Special Affairs and other senior positions in Scientology, but sort of always maintaining this, this uh, I'm a spokesperson for Scientology job. And then eventually I left in 2007 or escaped in 2007 in London, as a matter of fact. Go for it, David. Okay. Wow. This is so fascinating. I really appreciate this, Mike. And salute to your bravery because I mean, they must be hunting you down as like enemy number one these days. Um, it's just incredible. So it's as if you used to have that job and then you have left the fold and now others are pursuing you in the way that you've been pursued. Maybe you can say a bit about that, but here's my question. We're going to go deep, dark, and dirty here. Are you aware of any Masonic connections to Hubbard or David Miscavige or any of the other high-ranking members? Do they have any other affiliations to any type of other groups that you know of? Uh, some people have even um, compared Scientology to a, a branch of the Church of Satan and all this kind of stuff. Do you have anything on any of that? No, there, there is, I can assure you, there is nothing like that. Scientology and Scientologists, and particularly at the senior echelons of Scientology, are one hundred percent fundamentalist Scientologists. There is not root. You can't do yoga. That's, wow. that's considered to be a, 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 it's called a squirrel practice, a practice that is not 100% conforming. You can, there are certain books you're not supposed to read. You're not allowed to watch TV. You are a 100% that, I often say, David, uh, that, you know, mainstream religions all have their kooks. They have their fundamentalist arm of, you know, the, the, the Christians have the Westboro Baptist Church, the, the Jews have the Hasids. The, I mean, there are these very fundamentalist strains. The Mormons have the FLDS. They're very fundamentalist strains of all religions, and they do wacky shit. You know, uh, the, the Islamists will strap a bomb on themselves and go blow up a bus in Tel Aviv. I mean, that's nuts. But they're doing it because they are believing something, and that's a fundamentalist belief. Scientology is 100% fundamentalists. You cannot be a Scientologist and be a wavery, wishy-washy, Hubbard called it a panty-waisted dilettante. You can't be anything but a 100% dedicated Scientologist in order to call yourself a Scientologist. And that is one of the other hallmarks of, of a real cult is 
you're, you, there's no edges. You're either in or you're out. You're either with us or you're against us. And the, that, that is very, very true in Scientology. You're either, you're either 100% committed Hubbardite and total conviction that L. Ron Hubbard has the answers to everything, or you're not a Scientologist. So the phrase head of external threats implies that there would probably be internal threats. I'm wondering if there was a head of internal threats or if that came under your remit and also what would be the dirtiest tactics used to sabotage both external and internal threats? Okay, well, the actual, the actual title was the head of the Office of Special Affairs. It's much more euphemistic. There are a lot of things in Scientology, the euphemisms, the, the spy department of Scientology is called the Information Bureau. And, you know, this is all George Orwellian, 1984, you know, war is peace. Be, yeah. the, the, the terminology in Scientology, particularly in this area, is very, very euphemistic. So it was the head of the Office of Special Affairs, and that composed, or, or the three main things that were done in, in that were public relations, legal relations, government relations, and contained within underneath those were the structures of how you prevent something becoming a legal problem, how you prevent something becoming a public relations problem or a media problem, government problem. And that entailed dealing with what were called external threats, which were people who were outside of the now the operation of Scientology who were creating problems for Scientology and internal threats. Those who were still within the organization in some fashion, but presented a threat in some way. Like, for example, someone who was uh, threatening that I'm gonna go to, to the police and report that I'm being held against my will. That was an internal threat. The person who's escaped and gone to the police and is reporting that I was held against my will is an external threat. And they are treated uh, in many cases similarly, but not entirely. And the fundamental principle that Hubbard laid forth that is the operating basis of everything that's done in the Office of Special Affairs is that Anybody who attacks or threatens to attack Scientology has big, sordid crimes, that they are doing so because they are scared that Scientology is going to expose their big, sordid crimes. And this is a very, very exact thing that Hubbard wrote. And it's like I said, it's on my blog. I have this posting on my blog called the Dealing with Critics of Scientology, the L. Ron Hubbard Playbook. And it lays out all of these documents and explains how you are supposed to interpret them. But this is a fundamental idea that if you're wanting to attack or do some harm or expose Scientology, it only 
comes from your own horrible, sordid crimes. And Hubbard says, what you do is you find what those are. You hire private investigators, you dig through their lives, you take their garbage, you listen to their phone calls, you get their bank records, whatever, to find what these horrible, sordid crimes are. And if you haven't found them yet, it's okay. You can just accuse them of having those big sordid crimes because they are there. So you, you will be right. You may be wrong on the particulars, but you will be right because those people absolutely have horrible, sordid, terrible crimes. They are child molesters. They are, you know, it's the same litany of things that you see when you are demonized, when, when throughout history, anybody has sought to demonize others and make them less than human. And that's what Scientology does, is it makes those people who uh, it disagrees with and, and denominates as enemies into less than human. And so you ask, well, so what's the worst thing that has been done? I don't know. It, it sort of depends on who you are, because part of the technology of L. Ron Hubbard is to find out what you are seeking to protect and threaten that. So if it's your job, it's to get you, you threaten your job. And if you don't acquiesce to the threat to actually get you fired, if it's your family, it's to threaten your family or threaten your relationships with your family. And if you don't accede to the threat, then cause the rift in the family. So it's, you know, um, there were people who had a particular affection for cats. So if they were speaking out against Scientology, the animal services would be called on them to come and take away their cats with reports that they had, you know, they, they were keeping like 50 cats in a, in a underground shelter and not feeding them. It, 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 it depends on what it is that's important to you. And that's a part of the, the quote, technology of L. Ron Hubbard of how you deal with people who are enemies of Scientology. Wow. How are, one thing I've seen a lot is uh, the use of guilt and shame and uh, public pressure, or not public pressure, but like group pressure, right? Like peer pressure within these various cults. How's that used in Scientology? That's the first part. And then the second part, I've heard you characterize the current head of Scientology, David Miscavige, as a sociopath. I wondered if you could comment on that. And do you see that kind of behavior um, a lot at the at the top levels of that pyramid of uh, pyramidical structure? Uh, okay, so the first part is guilt is a is a massive um, a massive tool that is used to control people in Scientology. But understand, David, there is, a, there is a twist to it. And it is a brilliant twist that Hubbard put on to this idea of guilt, which is he said, and every Scientologist takes this to heart 100%, and it is a fundamental tenet of Scientology, that if you are feeling unhappy, you're upset, something bad happens to you, it is because of something you have done. 
something that you have done that has caused this to happen to you. And in Scientology, it's it sort of slangly referred to as, what did you do to pull this in? What have you done that caused you this pain, this upset, this doubt, this concern, this sickness? And so the guilt in Scientology is, is very self-inflicted. It's based on the idea that, oh my God, if David Miscavige just punched me in the face, what did I do to create that? Oh, something, I've done something. I've done something bad. What is it? What is it? What's, what have I done that has caused that to happen to me? And this is uh, an incredibly powerful glue that sticks people to Scientology because Hubbard also says that the only reason that you will want to leave Scientology, which is the greatest good that has ever happened to mankind, blah, 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 is because you have done bad things to Scientology. That if you're wanting to leave or you're doubting Scientology, it's because you've done something bad against it or had bad thoughts or bad intentions about it. And that if you uncover those, you will unburden yourself and suddenly you will see, oh, this was all just a big, terrible mistake. And so guilt in Scientology is a massively, massively powerful glue that sticks people in, but it's not quite done in, in the most part like you, you commonly think of guilting someone. Like, oh, I'm going to shame you because I saw you uh, walking around uh, in, you know, in, a woman, in women's clothing. So I'm going to guilt you. So no, that's in a Scientologist's mind is, what did I do? And this is, this is more powerful than the external guilting of someone. If you can persuade people that this is true, that their happiness, their well-being, their good health, everything about them is going to be determined by whether they've done something bad or not, then you easily get them to believe that the cause of their pain is themselves. So you have the bizarre state of affairs of, you know, and it's been being reported a lot recently uh, with this, with this criminal prosecution of Danny Masterson, the Scientologist actor who is accused by a number of women of having raped them. And the stories of those women are what happened when they reported their rape to Scientology was, what did you do to pull it in? You need to find out what you wow. did that caused this to happen to you. So victims, and there are lots of victims in Scientology, are victim shamed. But they're victim shamed by the fundamental principle of Scientology that if something bad happened to you, you did something to cause it. So if you want to lead the C organization, you are expected or you believe that it's because you've done bad things. So 
Second part of the question, is David Miscavige a sociopath? Uh, without question. And I read this really brilliant book fairly soon after I escaped. Um, it's called The Sociopath Next Door by a uh, Harvard professor called Martha Stout. And it's a very easy read. It's put in simple terms. And I'm reading this book and I'm going, oh my fucking God. This, that's exactly, I mean, just page after page after page. This is exactly how this guy operates. This is exactly what he does. The, 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 traits of a sociopath are, are 100% uh, descriptive of David Miscavige. Why did you leave Scientology, Mike? And has this mission put your reputation and physical being in jeopardy? Um, I left Sean because I finally woke up, but it took me a long time. Um, it's not a it's not a overnight thing where just suddenly one day you wake up. I mean, even after I escaped the Sea Organization, I still believed in Scientology. Like I escaped the Sea Org, I I you know left my wife and two children and escaped the Sea Org, and I was still a Scientology believer. It takes a long time to undo these things. Um, it's a bit of a long story, but ultimately. A lot of credit goes to, to John Sweeney of the BBC, who I, the reason I was in London at the minute was because he was doing a program about Scientology and particularly focused on David Miscavige. And I was there as the spokesperson and John was asking me on camera, you know, has David Miscavige ever struck you? I have eyewitness reports that he has beaten you, blah, 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 blah. And I'm there denying it. No, this is bullshit. No, we're going to sue you, blah, blah, blah. And it was totally true. And I knew exactly who the people were that he had spoken to. They were people that I used to work with who'd been in the same room with me. I'd get beaten up. They'd get beaten up. It wasn't like there was some, you know, mystery people who were making these allegations. They knew exactly who it was. And I, you know, in my history of being a spokesperson for Scientology, there's plenty of things that I had lied about, but I believe that they were lies that were based on fundamental principles of Scientology. You know, you're not supposed to expose the higher levels of Scientology teachings until people are ready for it and have paid for everything before and uh, are spiritually enlightened enough and that you would do them spiritual harm if that's exposed. So when I sat on national TV with Katie Couric and she's asking me about Xenu and OT3, which is some of this stuff, and I'm flat out denying it, I'm thinking, you know, this is for the benefit of people. This is like, this is, I can't do something that goes against my conscience. But when John Sweeney's asking me, well, is David Miscavige physically assaulting people? I'm thinking, is this really why I got into Scientology to protect this guy from, because he's beating people up and that that's a good thing to be protecting? And that really sort of, um, in, in some respects, was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I got out very shortly thereafter, like I said, in London. And like I said, as a Sea Org member, I walked out the door. 
of L. Ron Hubbard's former office in 37 Fitzroy Street, uh, just by the GPO tower there. And I had a briefcase. I had two Blackberry phones, a briefcase, the clothes on my back, and that was it. And I was in London. So I didn't know where I was going. I didn't have anywhere to go. I just knew I had to get out that nothing, there was nothing good that was going to happen if I stayed and that if I didn't get out, then I probably wouldn't be able to get out uh, just because of the circumstances of, there's a, there's a lot that goes into every one of these little stories, but that, that's the answer to your question. Thanks. If I have got time for one more, Sean. Yeah, go for quick. it. Okay. Um, it seems to be that certain cults attract <clears throat> different tiers of society, right? Mm. And Scientology has been around for a while and it really does appear to also attract a lot of people from Hollywood, a lot of people from, you know, higher <clears throat> levels of business, et cetera. Could you comment on that? Just how prevalent and popular is this amongst what we would call the elites or Hollywood or these types of celebrities, or is it just a few here and there, or does it actually cater more towards um, those types of people? Just to add well, on to it, that, the most, the most common thing that's coming up in the live uh, viewers right now is, is that to ask you about Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is a fundamentalist Scientologist. I mean, he got sucked in by his uh, uh, first wife, Mimi, who was the daughter of a very prominent Scientologist. And he, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why Tom Cruise stays in Scientology. And I, that would be a whole show in and of itself. But I want to answer David's question because I think it's actually more, more important, which is Hubbard targeted celebrities. He wrote that celebrities influence people in how they think and what they do, and they set the trends in society. He created organizations called celebrity centers, which are devoted entirely to dealing with celebrities. And they pitch Scientology to celebrities, particularly the big one in Hollywood, and there is a big celebrity center right in Hollywood, they pitch themselves as we have the technology of communication, that if you want to be able to communicate well, we have the technology of communication, how to communicate. And every person who is in the performing arts is by definition communicating to an audience. So it is a very uh it's a great hook to say to celebrity actors musicians artists of any description that we can help you communicate better to your audience and that's the hook that is used to get them in and back in the 70s and 80s there was quite a lot of of big time celebrities that got into Scientology. But if you'll note, since the 90s, there's not really anybody new. It's the same old, same old. It's John Travolta, Tom Cruise, Kirstie Alley. Uh, they're, they're like the same faces and things that get mentioned. The only really new 
celebrity Scientologist is Elizabeth Moss. And that's because she was raised a Scientologist. Her father was um, uh, a longtime manager of Chick Corea. And they have been a Scientology family since she was a child. And so she has been raised in Scientology and became a movie star or TV star first and after being a Scientologist. John Travolta and Tom Cruise were celebrity stars and then came into Scientology. But these days, that doesn't happen. I mean, it, nobody comes into Scientology these days. If you have access to Google, you're an absolute moron if you walk into a church of Scientology without doing a Google search. And the instant you do a Google search, it's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, I'm not, if I'm going to go in there, I'm not even going to give them my real name because I'm afraid that they're just going to, uh, you know, pursue me until the end of time. And that's advice that I give to anybody who says that they just want to go in and get their side of the story. I say, well, go for it, you know, get their side of the story. Just don't give them your real name and address or phone number because they'll never let go of you. We've just got a couple of minutes left um, for a few viewer questions. While they come in, I'd just like to ask the viewers if you would like to see Mike and David come back on to do a whole show on why Tom Cruise stays in Scientology, please put a one in the live chat right now. And we've got a couple of questions coming already then. So what happened to Shelley Miscavige? Okay, long, another long story. Shelley Miscavige fell into disfavor with her husband and he had her sequestered in a facility that is a super secret facility of the Church of Spiritual Technology. The Church of Spiritual Technology is this organization that is at the top of the hierarchy of Scientology created by L. Ron Hubbard to preserve his writings and lectures for eternity on etched stainless steel plates buried in vaults in titanium containers filled with argon gas. There is a property that is in uh, San Bernardino County at the top of uh, a mountain range there. And that is a very well protected secret location that very few Scientologists are aware of and even less have ever visited. And that is where Shelley was sent to be um, kept out of sight and out of mind. And she has remained there to this day. I believe that Shelley is waiting for the return of L. Ron Hubbard to vindicate her. Well, final question then. Is Scientology linked to the government? No, not at all. Scientology is very, very anti-government. Uh, that was a, another, there were two, two, or two things on earth that L. Ron Hubbard decreed as the enemies of the people. One is psychiatry, and that is way uh, over and above everything and anything. Psychiatry is the evil incarnate that has been evil and destroying mankind for eons. Um, that primarily is based on the fact that when he first wrote Dianetics in 1950, he tried to send it to the American Psychiatric Association and they were, told him that he was a quack. So they became 
public enemy number one, and then public enemy number two is governments, because he also believed that governments were persecuting him and seeking to destroy his good work because they wanted to collect his taxes. Well, huge thank you to both of you coming on this evening. We've got all your links in the description box below the video. Do you want to just respectively tell the viewers then where they can find you, what your preferred method of contact is and how they can support you? Well, uh, you can find me on Mike Rinder's blog, which is MikeRindersBlog.org. And that's the best place to reach out to me. You can put comments there. You can also find all these things that I've been referring to, Sean, you know, these documents, this this uh, one particular blog post that I did that sort of collects up all the Hubbard worst of writings about how you deal with critics of Scientology and explains them. And for people who've listened to this that are unfamiliar with Scientology, that's probably a really good place to start. But that's the best, MikeRindersBlog.org. And are you still out there, David, or have you been deplatformed? I've mostly been deep platforms, but I'm coming through a resurrection process um, where I'm on all the uh, platforms where they don't ban and censor you. So I no longer have my YouTube channel. Um, so you can find me. All the links are on my website, dwtruthware.com. And then also go and check out my collaborative project with Michael Tessarian, unslave.com. Those are the best places to find out where I'm at because that changes regularly these days. <laughs> all right. Again, Huge thank you guys for coming on. Have a great rest of your weekend. And I have got to move on with the show now. So take care. Thank you, Sean. Nice. Thank you, David. Nice thank chatting you. with you, Michael. I learned a lot. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, it's brilliant. Fascinating. Thank you. I mean, a great rest of your Wednesday, not weekend. Cheers, Michael. Good night. Thanks. All right. So if you're watching this, then we are now getting to the half hour mark. That was our first hour of Atwood Unleashed. Looking at the chat, it seems like everybody was absolutely fascinated by that. It was an absolutely compelling insight that Mike laid down there. I could tell he was cutting his answer short just to fit in the hour, but it would be an honor and a privilege to get Mike back on if he would be up for it. Like he said, he could do a whole show on why Tom Cruise stays in Scientology. And I think we need to know a lot more about how they use celebrities to manipulate the mindset of the public. I'd also like to know a lot more about what Mike did in his capacity as, what was his uh, official title again? It's a long one in his official capacity as head of external threats for the Church of Scientology. So there's so much more there we could go with. So next up, Johan Grillo from the front lines of Mexico. I mean, if there's a cartel massacre, he goes out to the crime scene. He's been in Mexico for years, really brave guy. We've had him on here. We've, he's been on Joe Rogan. Then Kirby Summers on Maxwell. Then Richard Gage on 9-11. So that is what we've got coming up next on our Patreon. In the description box below this video is the Patreon tiers link. If you want to join the community we're building on Patreon, click on those links and tiers two and three, get access to the next two hours. So I'm going to have to move on right now because we are a little bit behind. 
thank you for staying with us tonight. Really appreciate it. And again, apologies for the delay this evening due to the technical difficulties, but thanks for sticking around. It was really worthwhile to hear David and Mike. All right, take care.